I'm going to tell you a story about Billy. And Billy was asleep in his bed in his house around 4 a.m. when he woke up to this mammoth man grabbing him by the ankles and pulling him out of his bed. At the same time, a second gigantor man is behind him, grabs his hands, forces him behind his back, handcuffs him, and they put a hood on him. They whisk him out of the house into a van that is parked on the curb waiting. From there, about 30 hours, he's driving in this van, handcuffed, hooded. Today, I'm going to tell you Billy's story. Welcome to Socialite Crime Club. Rocco here, the towing services press one, locksmith services press two, and for kid removal services press three. Rocco's kid removal services, making kids better. How can I help you? Hello, sir. I found your website and have some questions about your transportation services. Excellent. And uh, by the way, please call me Rocco. Okay, thank you. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how you go about transporting children. Well, I can tell you, ma'am, we make your kids better by transporting them out to these wilderness treatment camps. You know, they have a whole bunch of trail walking stuff, basically getting kids right with nature. You know, they, they learn how to eat berries and lizards and worms you know, live off the land type stuff. They say it's very good for them. Being outside in the fresh air really clears a kid's head, kind of puts them on the right path. You know, we do our best to make your kid better, but some kids never get better, just so you know. Some of these kids are just rotten to the core, if you know what I mean. You did mention all this fresh air, being outside and a protein-rich diet, but do they teach these kids these lifelong survival skills? Do these Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These kids, they go into the forest like little monsters, little hellions, you know? And when they're done, they come out. They're as clean cut as a Kennedy ready for Senate. The good Kennedys that ran for Senate, that is. Just to be clear, Mr. Rocco, you would be only handling the transport of my son, Billy. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Pick him up. We take him anywhere in the country you tell us to. And, uh, you know, we just need to know when. When are you looking to send him off? We'd like for him to be picked up within the week, please. All right, hold on. Let me take a look at my uh, calendar here. Um... All right. Next Monday, we can swing by and pick them up for you. Okay. And I see a couple of offerings on your website for pickup. I see the snatch and grab and the bag and tag. How exactly does it work that we decide which one to use? They both accomplish the same thing. You know, we get a van, we drive over to your house and, you know, we help, help Billy get into the van and off we go. You know, we take them wherever you want to go. It's wicked easy, you know, with most of these kids. One more thing, I'd like to avoid telling him you're coming because he can be very difficult when his father and I try to tell him what to do. So we avoid conflict with him at all costs. Your website states that you specialize in transporting children who may resist or become combative. Is there something that we need to do to prepare for your arrival? I gotta tell you, it's not something we like to brag about or anything, but uh, me and the boys are pretty good at getting kids in the van, getting them to where they need to go. 
Okay, so how does the snatch and grab service work? All right, well, the snatch and grab, we get the schedule of little Billy and, you know, where he's going to be. And me and the boys are out there in the car or the van, whichever one we're taking. And we kind of follow him around. And when the opportunity presents itself, we just snatch him up and we're off. We're heading down the road. I see. And most children respond well to this. It happens pretty fast. They really don't really have time to respond. It's a snatch and grab type thing, if you know what I'm saying. Basically, we'll follow Billy around. And once he's by a curb, we'll pull up, open the door, pull him in. And uh, next thing you know, he's on his way with us. What if he's with his friends when he's at the curb? That would be a little embarrassing for him. Yeah, yeah, it might be, or who knows, maybe even scary for him. But uh, but I got to ask, does he hang out with a lot of friends? What are they like? To be honest, his friends are part of our growing concerns because Rocco, he only hangs out with girls, but he never expresses a desire to be in a relationship with them. And then they all get these damn giggle fits when Billy hangs up a new celebrity poster in his room. Most recently, Tom Selleck from his Magnum PI days. Billy has come out and told his father that he's gay and that did not go over well. So one of the reasons we're looking into this is because I understand these treatment camps can root those feelings out of him. Yeah, that, that wow, that's that's a lot. Yeah, you got a lot going on with, with Billy, huh? Well, I don't want you guys to worry. The snatch and grabs, first off, we leave the friends behind. But I do have to say, if you're concerned with these friends, if any of their parents want our services, feel free to give them our number. You know what I'm saying? We've had some kids displaying some of those gay tendencies too in the past. You know, Magnum PI does it for a lot of them, I guess. But don't worry about it. You know, these camps, they take them out on 10-mile hikes every day, walks the gay right out of them. Little Billy come out of there being a man's man, eating worms, growing hair on his chest. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Yes. I think his dad would be appreciative of this conversation. Maybe instead of picking up a, a front of his friends or their private pickup we could do instead yeah absolutely we could go with the old-fashioned home bag and tag me and the boys come over real early in the morning before he's awake before the sun comes up pop in his room grab him up throw a bag on his head throw him in the van and uh before you know it we're halfway down the pike Rocco, i have to ask why do you call it the bag and tag it just sounds very vulgar because we're gonna put a hood over billy's head when we pull him out of bed calms the kids down Kind of like the alligator wrestlers counting down the alligators find if you make eye contact with some of these little kids they're like wild animals cover up their eyes and they they don't fight as much you know what i'm saying as far as the tagging goes sometimes we got more than one or two kids in there we don't want to get them confused bring them to the wrong place so we just throw a name tag on them that's all the bag and tag okay and you mentioned you come pretty early in the morning for the bag and tag does that come with any breakfast <laughs> yeah, we can do some breakfast for them. You know, we got swing by dunks on the way over, adds a little time to our schedule. So we just throw a little more money on the uh, on the bill for you on that. But yeah, we'll take care of that. We really don't want to go through dunks drive through when we got a van full of kids. You know, it always kind of looks suspicious when you're doing that. Money's no object. Okay, so let me just take a look here. I got you on the schedule early next Monday morning. Pretty simple. We're going to do the bag and tag in your house. Probably best if you you and the hubby take a night out on the town, have a nice dinner. You know, maybe you'll see a movie or something and then end up at a hotel. You leave me and the boys the keys to the house. We'll make sure Billy's sound asleep, pop in his room, throw the bag on his head. We'll have him in the van. We'll be halfway down the pike before he even knows what's happening. Who exactly are the boys that you keep mentioning? Boys, that's Sully and Murph. 
Sully's, I hate to say strong on, but Sully was a golden gloves boxer back in the day. And I kind of bring him along in case some of these kids are kind of big now. And if they're scrappers, I don't want to get into it with them. He kind of takes care of that. And then Murph, Murph's my guy. He used to do electrical at 103, but he's been laid off for a couple of years now. You know how the unions go. To be honest with you, he's the only one with a license. So he's got to drive the van for us. So those are my boys. Billy won't get hurt, will he? No, I don't see that happening. But I do have to ask some safety questions. I don't even know how old Billy is. What do we got for an age? He's 15. Okay. Is he a scrapper? I'm sorry, a scrapper? Is he getting Donnie Brooks at school? Does he fight a lot of kids? Stuff like that? No, this is another issue. He's never made it past his yellow belt. He just can't finish anything that he starts. All right, hold on here. Karate skills. I got to take a note of that. And uh, I got to tell you, I think this one's looking really good for a bag and tag. You and the mister will be out. Uh, anybody else going to be in the home? I'll make sure that Charles and I are out. Okay. Any pets in the house? Billy has a goldfish. <laughs> okay. One goldfish. Uh, we're not going to take the fish, just so you know. Where are we going to be taking, Billy? Well, I'm beginning to understand there are several schools and camps that offer these services. Do you work with a lot that maybe you could recommend one in particular? Yeah, there's one I like using for uh, kids like Billy, especially coming out of Boston area. It's out in Arizona. Totally different place for them. Totally different environment. Well, I could see that. He's never been to Arizona, and I suppose a bit of travel is always good to broaden a child's horizons. Yes, it is. I got to tell you, the sooner the better, right? So uh, let me just take a look here again. We got the, the bag and tag. We got transport Boston out to Phoenix. About seventy-two hundred bucks, but uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to round it up to seventy-five hundred, and I'll go ahead and throw a box of Munchkins in for Billy. Guessing he likes the ones with the sprinkles, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, and and just so you know, we do only do uh, cash for payment. You can leave it under the mat for us. Okay. Got it. Thank you so much, Mr. Rocco. Thank you. Look forward to it. Thank you. This kind of stuff really happens. Like these phone calls actually take place when parents are trying to figure out how to send their kid off to be a better kid. Right, and obviously we had some fun with that, but once I got into the research on this episode, I've gotta be honest, the whole episode changed. But before we get to there, let's back up and I gotta give our audience a little better understanding about poor Billy. So Billy's 15, he's a freshman in high school, and he's dabbling in marijuana, like he likes to smoke weed. And he's figured out that if he sells enough weed, he can support his own habit because his parents won't give him the money. Oh. So now he's selling weed at the high school. It's a big high school, about 4,000 students. How many parents do you think around the country actually just give their kids some money for weed because their kids like, 62.3%. Hey. You think so? Yeah, at least. Maybe 67%. So you're telling me if one of our kids came to you and be like, hey, dad, I just, I just want to buy some weed. I just want to get high if after school If you don't today. think one of our kids has bought weed with money you and I have given them, you're insane. Oh, no, I know they have, but I'm saying, like, they don't just come to us and ask for it. Well, no, that's no kid does, but I like, think Like, they need parents, to go work for it. If they want to yeah, get high, like, you need to go work for go it. Go get a job. So, yeah. anyway, Billy is competing a little bit in the weed business at school because it's a big school, and there's some of these Hispanic kids that are also selling weed, but there's, like, this little turf war going on. Mm-hmm. And Billy's really concerned because they want to beat him up, and he believes that they're connected to the cartel. And Billy's a little white kid. Billy's a little, a very affluent white kid. Okay. And he's worried these Hispanic kids, because they're just Hispanic, are connected to the cartel. Um, he stays out late. He never comes home when he's supposed to. Uh, it's not uncommon for Billy to go to school Friday morning and then not show up at home until Sunday night. And his parents are getting to the point they're just done with him. He's just on bingers all weekend he's, yeah, long. Yeah, he's on bingers. And 
not to me, not to you, but to the parents, the most disturbing detail that's recently come out is Billy came out and he has told his parents that he's gay. Oh dear. And they are really, really struggling with this. So they, oh. they don't know all of the background about the, the marijuana stuff, but they do know the gay part. They know the issues about him. What year are we in? This is going to be about 2001, so okay. 20 plus years ago. Um, so there's all these issues going on. And the thing about Billy, the opening there, it's real. This is what happened to Billy. But Billy thought it was the cartel. He's a 15-year-old dumb He's little kid. He's snatching him and taking him into he a van. He literally thought he got abducted by the cartel. He's it, headed to Sinaloa. Yes, like they're going <laughs> to hang him off a bridge or something, make an example out of his $15 weed sale. Before they lunch. execute him. Yeah, so this whole trip, he's freaking out because he literally thinks like, I'm in the big time now, like I'm going to get killed. Okay. Um, he finally shows up in Mesa, Arizona of all places, which could arguably be worse than Sinaloa. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of places in Mesa that I'm like, I get there and I'm like, where the hell am I? Yeah, yeah. I would much rather go somewhere. <laughs> Even Stevie, Even Stevie knows. knows. like, oh. Stay out of Mesa. like, by the way, the reptile shop's over there too. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so at this point, he realizes, okay, these are two white dudes. I'm being taken into this business, like this headquarters, and it's all like Mormon white people, and they're all super nice. Okay, clearly this isn't the cartel. But how, how did they tell they're Mormon? Well, there was the, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Mormon Jesus, Jesus on, the, on wall the wall when he walked in. Like, he immediately recognized a handful of things where he's like, uh-huh. okay, this is And very, they offered him a cookie. Yeah, very religious setting. And lemonade. Which he accepted lemonade. because it's not Sinaloa. He's not going to die, so he's happy. Yeah. Um, it's they, probably a relief. Uh, there's got to be some. And this is where it's first explained to him that his parents have orchestrated this entire thing and that he is going to a wilderness rehabilitation camp for teenagers uh, because he is straight off the path and they want to put him on the path for lack of a better term to get straight again literally oh dear they're going to walk the gay out of him essentially which is insane and we'll get into this as we go however because this this program is very physically demanding of the, the kids that get put into it, they have to do a physical. They have to send him to a doctor to make sure like, hey, he's not gonna pass out and die tomorrow. So they load Billy back in the van, they mm-hmm. take him to a doctor's office and he's waiting to go back and the doctor comes out and takes him back and it's it's a, a regular routine physical. Anybody, male or female, who's played sports in high school or in yeah, their, you their get a physical. you get a physical every year, right? The school requires it, exact same thing. For the females out there and maybe males who haven't had a physical like this, there's a part of that that gets very uncomfortable, especially for young males, where you have to drop your pants and your underwear, and basically the doctor, for lack of a better term, cups your testicles okay. and tells you to turn and cough. It, everybody makes fun of the turn and cough. The doctor's checking for a hernia. If you have a hernia, it actually protrudes through the scrotum okay. when you cough. And mm-hmm. if they catch it early, it's a simple procedure, fix it. If they don't catch it early, it can be very serious. So like that's, kids just bleed out or something? Yeah, or? And I think there's just a litany of medical issues that it causes, but it, mm. it's you can avoid it with okay. a proper exam. So the doctor does the turn and cough. Billy's never had a physical before. So right off the bat, he's like, okay, this is a little weird. Not only did I get abducted 48 hours ago, but now I'm getting yeah. felt up by a doctor. Like, what the hell? Yeah. But he doesn't know any better. When the doctor finishes the hernia exam, he says, okay, can you go ahead and lay down on the table for Does me? Does the doctor ask him if he's ever had a physical before? I don't know, that's a good question. That, that's a great question. I know that 
we'll get into this in a little bit. There's going to be a litany of victims. Some had, some had not. Okay. So I don't know if that was uh, something that came up in the pre-screening itself. But long story short, when the doctor has Billy lay down on the examination table, the doctor actually physically masturbates Billy to, to the point of ejaculation. And he's oh explaining to Billy during this process that as part of the physical exam, he has to make sure everything's working properly. And then Billy does his thing. The doctor cleans him up and out the door he goes. And he's now going to a rehabilitation camp. Mom, who sets this whole thing up, uh, was just out of her ends wits with everything. Wits end. That too. Uh, with everything that Billy had been doing. So she had a church friend who told her about this program. She was really worried about getting Billy out there because she knew he wouldn't cooperate. And that's where the same church friend turned her onto these transportation companies, mm -hmm. which is where Rocco comes in, if you will. Um, and obviously we made up the Rocco Kid Removal Service, which by the way is a legitimate website, roccokidremoval.com. Right. Um, yeah, you can go there and see his, his I, I think the only difference between Rocco's Kid Removal Service is that some kids might get picked up in like a, a weird looking white van and from what i understand now is some kids actually get picked up in black suvs yeah and the one thing that i found is consistent in all of these child abductions is which i'm going to call them is uh the kids are usually given an option you can cooperate and we'll get on a plane or you can be uncooperative and it's going to be a really long drive right um Billy thought it was the cartel, so he opted not to cooperate, which is why it was a very long drive. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of different avenues of how these kids can be transported, and we'll, we'll jump into that. After his exam, he's a little shocked. Um, he's escorted back to the headquarters where he first arrived. Um, they provide him some hiking gear, boots, mm -hmm. backpack, a, a, a sleeping bag, handful of like survival tools. And then they drive him out to the middle of the desert and drop him out off with this group. Um, the closest town is like 60 miles away. And this is how this organization keeps the kids from running away because they're free to run away. And they tell them like, hey, you don't want to go with us. You want to leave? Take, take your own path. And they have what I'm going to call a trail walker, which we'll get into here in a little bit. They have a trail walker just follow the kid and usually 10, 15 miles into it, the kid gives up and is like, yeah, it's too far to walk and they come back. Mm -hmm. um, but there is no restraints used because they literally put them in the middle of nowhere, which super interesting how this whole thing goes down. Okay. So mom is gonna pay over $30,000 for this experience. The idea here though is, I think it's important that we clarify a couple things. This episode's going to go all over the place here in just a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's called Dr. Strokin. The doctor's name was Dr. Sorokin. I didn't make up the Dr. Strokin name, and we're going to get to that here in a little bit. But before we get there, I have to give you some background on what is this wilderness rehabilitation? I, I, I agree with you. The background is really important in this case because I feel like there's more crimes here happening than just our crime of sexual assault on we a teenager. We are the tip of the iceberg. This is a billion dollar industry in the United States. Uh, it is huge. Well, so, let's let's clarify what's a billion dollar industry. The industry of teenager rehabilitation, making correct. your teenager 
better behaved, making them a better person, a successful person for the future. This is what the billion dollar industry is. So as it pertains to the wilderness therapy, essentially there's this guy, um, (laughs) this is the late 60s, like 1967, 1968. His name is Larry Olson. And he will later become like really well known and admired for his survivalist techniques. He writes books, he does all kinds of stuff. Uh, He's a Mormon kid. He at the time is going to BYU, so Brigham Young University in Utah. And he starts this little side program at the university of like survival school. And people can take it as a credit. And during the semester, you go out into the woods and you learn how to survive off the land. BYU went to him with this idea, or they kind of developed it in, in together, where kids who were failing out of BYU, instead of just sending them home, you could opt for like this remedial plan. And the okay. remedial plan is you go spend a semester, an entire semester out in the woods with Larry. So it's like you and Larry, best buds, living off of lizards and acorns for a semester. And if you live, BYU will let you come back for the next semester. For an entire semester they do this? You're doing it for an entire semester. Okay. BYU immediately noted that the kids who were completing this program and coming back were better. They paid attention better. They got better grades. And I think the idea was, well, I don't want to go back out and live with Larry eating acorns and squirrels. So you're damn right I'm going to do better. So they're forcing themselves to get through school at this point. Yeah. And, you know, there's probably some, some real proof in the pudding here that this program did appear to be helping some of these kids get, you know, a little bit more focused and they were more successful. Another individual who was a student at BYU at the time ended up in this program because he was failing out. And his name is Ezekiel. Ezekiel Sanchez. So Ezekiel and Larry are hanging out in the woods and they just hit it off. Like they become really good friends and ultimately they are going to develop this first business plan, if you will, of wilderness rehabilitation for troubled teens. And the concept Hmm. here is that if I have a child who's really struggling emotionally on a litany of issues, I can send them to these wilderness camps and Larry and Ezekiel are going to rehabilitate them. Now, what year was this? We're starting to get into the early 70s now. Um, Because there were other schools happening like this around that time. Yeah, and there's a common tie. All of them are originating out of the BYU satellite or some sort of cultish uh, mindset, (laughs) from what I understand. Yeah, but the big ones, all of them that are happening resonate back to BYU. It's either people who went through Larry's program or they were familiar with the BYU program and kind of expanded from there. There, Mm -hmm. Almost everyone that you can find in the 70s and the early 80s, you can trace the roots somewhere back to this initial BYU program. Okay. And I should clarify, although Larry Olson is no longer with us, uh, he died in 2018, he was really against the, the more paramilitary style camps that were developed in the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, one thing of interest to me, just as I was reading, is Larry and Ezekiel actually really became known by other names. Uh, Larry became known as Yellow Wolf, mm-hmm. and Ezekiel was Good Buffalo Eagle. Okay. So what I know of Ezekiel is that he was some sort of Native American 
tribal member. I think out of Mexico somewhere. Correct. <laughs> this is funny to me. So out of, not that he was Native American, but the names. How, I'm imagining from what I know, from what I've talked to a, a Native American person about is that people typically get some sort of nickname like Ezekiel had, what was his nickname again? Good Buffalo Eagle. Good Buffalo Eagle. Not to be confused Typically with Typically when it's a, it's a developing personality trait or some type of characteristic, characteristic as a young child, an elder will give that to them, right? So how does Larry Olson come out of the forest with Yellow Wolf? That'd be like you and I going camping or something and I'm like, I shall be called Sleeping Rabbit. <laughs> and you. Make it good. It better be good. <laughs> it better be damn good. Breathless Bear. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Breath I'm only Just thinking call me of BB like. for short. I'm only thinking of you like in the mornings when we work out. I'm trying to think of like a characteristic, right? You're kind of grumpy and. You get a little winded, maybe winded bear. I don't know, but how do they come up with these names? Because Larry Olson was not a tribal member. I've, I have no idea. I, I literally can't tell you. I'm just letting you know that if you ever hear Yellow Wolf or Good Buffalo Eagle, that's this who is who they are. About. But right. it's interesting to me because other things that I've seen, a lot of these wilderness camps will incorporate some type of perverted Native American ritual into the structure of the getting better process yeah and this is only my opinion and my opinion is not worth anything so before anybody gets offended at my opinion i'm acknowledging my opinion is just it's just that it's it's an opinion overwhelmingly across these wilderness rehabilitation camps if you will or treatment programs the common tie is they all try to bring in some type of native american belief system into it I almost feel like they're targeting like well nobody can really attack the native american beliefs like it's just socially improper to do so right so i almost feel like these corporations intentionally do it to kind of give them this little bit of insulation from people coming out and just calling straight bullshit, right right um in this program that billy is in exact same thing they're embracing a lot of native american beliefs if you will or at least alleged beliefs and one of them is called sitting and i'll give you an example of a sitting here in a little bit but essentially what it is is you and i are going to sit down and talk and it really gives you some perspective on some of these kids maybe their family situations aren't very good where what they learn is that they can just sit down and talk to people i mean i know that's a crazy concept yeah but they call them sitting and it's like this native american thing the way that it's presented that we sit in a circle and we have these we communicate conversations correct right um the program that he's going into is a a trail walking program where billy will become known as a young walker and essentially it's kind of no joke uh it's a minimum of like 50 days and that's if you do everything right there's kids who will do this program for over a year right um you're hiking up to 10 miles a day uh, at night you have to strike camp wherever you end up and you are literally out in the wilderness. They are learning to live off the land. They'll eat lizards and berries. They've got to dig for water. Like it's it's the real deal when it comes to survival stuff. Right. 
and it's mentored by trail walkers. And I think it's really important for our listeners to understand this is a therapeutic program, right? It's like a program that's supposed to help these kids. The number one influence that these young walkers have are the trail walkers. Most of these trail walkers are in their early 20s. Um, you'll see why in a little bit. And some of this has changed. They've had to evolve their program over the years. But initially, especially in the mid-2000s, these trail walkers were pretty much all LDS kids, um, either getting ready to go on a mission, they had just gotten home from a mission, it's kind of a side gig. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not pay well, so you're not making a lot of money, and you're just basically hanging out with these kids. They would do it in shifts, so like you're out there with these kids for like eight to 10 days. And these kids have no formal training in therapy and no. counseling no. and psychology, nothing. Furthest thing from it. And they get some basic training, obviously, with like the survival stuff. But to give you an idea, the training program is three weeks. Like there's only so much you can digest in a three week period. The kids do get counseling roughly about seven hours a week, an hour a day. By who? From an actual counselor or like oh, a psychologist. Okay. Like a therapist. But the rest of the time, the trail walkers are the ones who are mentoring and basically overshadowing everything that they do. Guiding them through life with all yeah. of their life experience. Putting them on the straight path, no pun intended. Interesting. At nighttime, there's a break time. And if you think about you're in prison and you get to go out to the yard, yeah, or some yard you're time. a third grader, you get to go to recess. Mm -hmm. For these young walkers, nighttime, they would sit around a fire and they call it, got really creative, sitting around the fire or around the fire, around the fire. They actually have a podcast now called Around the Fire. This organization does. And they like talk when they want to like talk up the organization. The uh -huh. podcast is Around the Fire, which is so ironic to me. That is ironic. So Around the Fire, Billy is starting to loosen up a little bit. He's made some friends. Like he's starting to have open conversations. And he finally feels confident enough to bring up the subject. And he's like, hey, anybody else have a weird experience during their physical? And all the other kids like immediately chime in. Oh, you mean Dr. Strokin? Keep in mind, okay, the trail walkers are present, right? So the people who are in charge of these kids out in the wilderness. Do you know how many trail walkers are with the kids at any given time? I can tell you in Billy's case, at least four. Okay. Because I end up interviewing all four of them, which we'll get to. Um, I think that number could vary depending on how big the group is as well. So okay. I, I don't want to say there's always X number. Um, but what comes out of these around the fire conversations is that it is very well known that the good doctor is masturbating these male boys. The females, nothing, but he's definitely targeting the males. Okay. They're the ones it's just, who- It's what he's into. Yeah, it's what he's into. Everybody's got their vice, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, this is where the name Dr. Stroken comes from. And it the is- The kids make it up around the fire. Over and over and over. Um, Dr. Sororkin was contracted to this organization for about a 12 month period from 2000 to 2001. Uh, there was over 150 kids put through the program during this time period. So initially, the basic math here is that he had access to at least 150 of these kids during his contract. Mm -hmm. The kids would come and go from the program. Most of the trail walkers would be consistent. And the one thing that was consistent throughout all this time, Dr. Stroken. Um, it's not a secret. It's very well known. It's repeated by the trail walkers even. And the all of the adults with them, the non-young walkers, are hearing this consistently every night. 
The trail walkers, correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, they're, they know what's going on. I don't want to make this entire episode of me bashing on this program. I've read a lot of reviews, and they're very mixed. There are a, a good number of people out there who swear by this program, that it changed their life. They were suicidal going into the program, and it literally saved their life. And I, I don't want to take away from that. There's also a lot of kids who are like, this was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me. And I am a adult at this point, and I still haven't forgiven my parents, and I have not gotten over these mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. Um, so it goes from life-changing, it saved my life, to a horrible, horrible experience. And it was really eye-opening for me to get involved with this. And I, we're going to explain the investigation that's about to happen as a result. But I know that there was at least one really in-depth review that I was reading where this kid basically stated, it taught me how manipulative I could be because the only way I could get out of the program was to manipulate everybody around me to get through the stages I had to get through to be released. And when I got home, I realized what a terrible person I was. And if I ever had to run a street gang or a prison gang, I was capable. That's what he took away. You know, this is so interesting because in um, prepping for this episode and you had told me something about, you read something about Harris, Paris Hilton experiencing something like this. So what did I do? I did a little bit of research and I went out and bought her memoir. And she got gooned. She got gooned. We'll talk about gooning here. And her experience, I never ever imagined myself, first of all, picking up a book by Paris Hilton because the only thing I ever really knew about her was her role in The Simple Life, which come to find out, find out was all very much just acting. Very there was scripted. nothing about it. Yeah, but um, this experience happened to her as a teenager and violently violently like she thought she was being raped correct when well when started? she was pulled out of bed she thought that she was being raped she actually saw her parents kind of watching through the door um like with tears coming down their face watching her being taken out of the house into a black suv she she did think she was being raped but throughout her experiences her experience was over two years and she gets into just this horrifying beratement of their version where she went um, of around the fires, if you will. They, hers were called wraps in some of her yeah. And we should clarify where Billy ended up and where Paris ended up, two totally, two totally different totally places. different programs. But they both kind of had their roots through BYU. Mm -hmm. And she gets into a lot of these experiences, which the only reason she was actually really ever sent off, she gets into um, some ADHD that she was living with that was never diagnosed. And back in the 90s, nobody knew we what all ADHD, had ADHD was. AD Every Gen X kid had ADHD. Right. Um, but she was sneaking out and she was going to raves and things like that. And the hardest part for me of this book was the beginning of the book because it was so cringy. And the reason it was so cringy is because, like, I saw myself in this book. I was this same teenage kid as Paris Hilton, but without a wealthy family to send me off to some crazy boarding school like. Yeah, your parents could never afford this. Provo County. You know, my parents would never be able. My mom took me out of dance lessons when I was in sixth grade because I ditched school and went to the mall when in reality she just couldn't afford the dance lessons anymore. Yeah, right? but, uh, but you have to realize like this 
less than a 50 day program is $30,000. Like yes. a lot of parents get, and your dad would never hire goons. He would just headbutt you and take you himself. Uh, yeah, he would. Yeah. He would headbutt <laughs> me and like tell me like straighten out, right? Yeah, like, like fix your shit, yeah, kid. Get up, wipe your knees off. Rightfully Go so. to your room. So wait, you were raving? Yeah, I snuck out all the time. I went to raves, which Paris Hilton apparently did too, because it was one of her only ways of getting away from her hovering parents, her helicopter parents. Did she ever uh, dance in cages? I don't know. I'm sure she did. Did you ever dance in cages? I did. You know that. <laughs> yeah. So it was like this thing, right? I had. Wait, wait. No, you can't just say it well, was this thing. Hang on. I had a fake ID that said I was 18, not because I wanted to drink, not because I wanted to do drugs, but I wanted to get into after hours. You clubs. wanted to pet the puppies at Petco. And you wanted, have to be 18. Yeah. And you want to go to after hours. Though parties. I can't pet puppies because I'm allergic to anything with fur or feathers. That's why I have a hairless dog. But. The point is, is that I wanted to get into after hours clubs and I just, I loved going. I loved dancing. I, I loved like the rave scene generally. And I remember I had like, I had a truck back then, a little GMC pickup and I'd pop it into neutral. I'd push it down the street, pop, hop back in. So my parents wouldn't hear me start the engine and off I was to the works back then. It was in Scottsdale, right? Terrible. And yeah, it was terrible. But the point is I could see myself in Paris a little bit here beyond the fact obviously that she was like super wealthy and had these amazing Waldorf story experiences that she talks about. Um, but it was a little scary because I was actually thinking to myself, like, had my parents actually had money, they probably would have sent me to some shit. This like makes this. a lot of sense now. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, maybe if I just send her to wilderness camp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still thinking that at times. I hate camping. <laughs> I hate camping. So, yeah, let's talk about that act of sending your kid and this is if there's something our listeners take away from this episode for me this was the most disturbing thing and i'm going to give you a scenario to, to start here as a police officer and around the country but also as parents you receive a call that there's a possible child abuse child welfare call you're just getting a call like hey you guys need to go check on this kid which law enforcement has to do once that call comes in there's no like ah, eh, we'll get to it later mm -hmm. when a child's involved and the welfare is being questioned we have to check it out and you're basically being told, hey, these parents are being super, super strict with this kid. They're abusing him. He's handcuffed with a hood on his head, locked in a closet. And you got to the house and you're talking to the parents. And the parents are like, well, yeah, he's been a little shit. So we put him in the closet and you're like, well, we should probably check on him. So they go and they remove a padlock on the outside of a closet door. They open up the door and there's little Billy sitting down handcuffed with a hood on his head. What do you do as a police officer as far as any potential criminal act here? I would take little Billy out of the closet. I would get CPS involved. I would start a full-on investigation, I would call yeah. investigations. Like, little Billy is not staying in the closet handcuffed. Especially with a hood on. And, right. and I want to make it really clear. I was brought up old school. <laughs> like, I was beat as a child. I had it coming. <laughs> I, I deserved every beating I ever got. Uh, but my parents were, were strict when it came to discipline like there was no negotiation i was beat to the point that if that happened today my parents would probably go oh, to it'd jail. be child abuse a hundred percent but we still live in a country that this is legal i can the rocco call although it's funny is real mm -hmm. we can call people like that to come pick up our kids by force and transport them across the country against their will handcuffed and hooded now i have to give oregon some props here. 
Oregon is cutting edge. They have just passed a new law about gooning. And gooning is the act of these transportation companies actually taking these kids by force out of their house. How screwed up this has become is the law in Oregon, if you're gonna goon a kid, you can't blindfold them, put a hood over their head or handcuff them. That was the cutting edge legislation that came out You know out what, of this. yeah, no, parents need to take their kids themselves there. Like if you wanna get rid of your kid, you need to take, so this actually reminds me of a terrible parenting story that I have oh. of myself. Oh dear, I can't wait. Tell me more. <sighs> okay, so my kids were little. They were probably about maybe three, four and six maybe. And your kids are like role model children. They are, the they're part. excellent kids, but they were being little brats on this particular day, actually throughout the entire week. And I was a working mom, I was busy. I, I did a lot as a working mom. And I think a lot of mothers out there can can relate to just how tired you are and how frustrated you get when your kids don't listen to you. Like, just pick up your room, please. So they weren't listening. I had an Odyssey van at this time, like with the automatic open doors and everything. I had pilot seats where they had their car seats. And I yelled at them and I said, get in the car now. And they could tell like, oh, we better listen to mom. So put him in the car and my eldest is like, where are we going? And I said, I'm taking you to the orphanage. Oh, and dear. I back out of the car, the driveway, and which I wasn't really serious, right? But like, I look the in the is. rear, I look in the rear view mirror, and my kids are like in the back seat. They had been fighting, right? They're in the back seat with across the pilot seats. They're like holding each other's <laughs> little hands, and my youngest is like. What's the orphanage? And my eldest is like, it's where kids go when their mommies and daddies don't want them anymore. And I'm like dying inside because my heart was breaking, but at the same time, I'm so pissed off. I'm so frustrated with them just because of their, just not doing what I'm asking them to do. And I drive probably about like three or four miles before I just can't take it anymore because they're sobbing in the back seat and they, they really think they're going away to, this place where mommies and daddies don't want them anymore. And I'm only telling this story because there are parts of me where I'm like, I can relate to wanting to send your kid away. Right. But at the same time- but You drove around the block twice, yeah, and but, then you're like, oh, hey, sorry kids, the orphanage is closed today. At least I had the guts to take them myself, right, okay? Right, Oh, I've told you, if this podcast thing doesn't work out, I'm starting one of these transportation companies, <laughs> but I'm taking the whole freaking family. Like, you call me, the, the parents are getting bagged and tagged too, because they're the first ones I'm dropping off at their stupid camp to rehabilitate their asses about what they're I doing. I agree, I agree. So back to what I was getting at is there's no regulation. And as I started digging into this, like Billy went because he was starting to be a little bit of a shit, but the driving reason is he was gay. And a lot of these camps, these rehabilitation programs have kind of stopped pushing the gay conversion piece. But when Billy went in the mid early 2000s, it was a real thing. Right. Um, if, if my kid was gay, I could send him to this camp. I could have him handcuffed, hooded, driven across the country against their will, put in these really intensive camps because they're gay. And there was mm -hmm. no oversight. And you know, if you think about today's standards, we send people to jail for this. It's called child abuse. <laughs> like, right? holy cow, it was- Well, not only is this poor kid being ostracized because he's gay, but now he's going to Camp Wilderness with 
potentially a bunch of other gay kids who they're not allowed to look at each other. They're not allowed to say certain things to each other. Oh, I'll go there. Yeah, let's put 10 teenage hormone-fueled gay males together in a camping setting with a Scoutmaster-type overview, if you will. Nothing's going to happen. With Mormon boys who never get to talk about sex at home. Not only to talk about sex, none of them have had sexual experience, which we're going to get into. You can't work for this program. That you know of. Well, yes, we're going to get into that. But like, terrible idea. Just terrible. It is. A horrible idea. Um, (laughs) Okay, so years have gone by. And like I said, a lot of these programs have been forced to change. But at Socialite Crime Club, we always want to back up. Because I know we're going to get some listeners on this one who are probably somewhat affiliated with some of these programs who there's going to be a lot of hate spewed towards us. But you know what? Mm Google. Google's an amazing search tool. Uh, Hogan versus Anasazi. It's a 2009 civil case in Maricopa County Superior Court uh, out of Phoenix. Hogan is a a female from Connecticut, and she's going to sue the Anasazi Foundation, which is one of these programs. And what happens is she applies to become a trail walker. When she's in Connecticut, she gets an opportunity to come out and go through the training where she'll be given from a conditional offer to a full-time offer. She quits her job as a Walmart worker. She drives all the way from Connecticut to Arizona. She buys all of her own supplies, hiking boots, sleeping bags, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's about 2,500 bucks into this. Her third day of training, she is invited to have a sitting, sit down and talk Mm -hmm. with another trail walker. And the focus is very quickly shifted to, I notice you have a ring on your finger. It's It's a wedding ring. At which point Hogan explains, yes, it is a wedding ring because I'm married. My wife is back in Connecticut. At which point this trail walker tells her she will not be a good fit for the program and that she will not be getting the job. Um, He tries to justify this by explaining a lot of parents are sending their kids to this program because they're gay and having a gay trail walker undermines the programs and the parents won't trust her. Because, you know, of all the people involved in this story, the gay kid who drove from Connecticut and quit her job to come do this. And was fully committed. Is the one we need to worry about, right? Like, right. it's just insanity. Well, Hogan's going to push back a little bit. Like, hang on. You guys sent me an employee handbook. I've gone through it. I didn't see anything about this. And he says, well, yeah, but you need to look at this section. And he points out the section that says employees are prohibited mm-hmm. from having premarital sexual intimacies. And she's like, well, I'm married. Right. And he says, well, yeah, but it's 2009, you're in Arizona. Uh, Arizona, just for the record, did not recognize gay marriage until 2014. So in the state of Arizona, she was not legally married. I see. The Anasazi Foundation fired her or let her go because they were convinced that when she went home on breaks, she would have sexual intimacies with her wife in Connecticut, which therefore basically forbid her from having this job. So anybody who's like, hey, that's not the approach that we took, even with employees, they were very, very strict on this. And it's it's documented. Like you can pull up the actual filings uh, online very easily and actually read about it. So it was kind of interesting. Um, th- the biggest statement I took out of that is that this trail walker was trying to explain that parents are sending their kids to these programs to root out their gayness, which interesting. is complete insanity. Yes, it is. 
Okay, so moving forward, um, I found some other pretty crazy ones. Uh, one kid uh, really had a hankering for Arnold Palmer uh, lemonade iced tea combinations. Oh, no. Iced tea has caffeine. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a member of the LDS church, you cannot have caffeine. Uh, one of these kids got sent to camp because of his addiction to caffeine. Um, some of them for just simply swearing. And the reason I'm drawing this line is I, as a police officer who's had to deal with some of these calls, I mm -hmm. get there are teenagers who are completely out of control on that cusp of tomorrow, you don't know if they're going to be alive or dead or God forbid, they've killed somebody else. Like I've right. dealt with those type of kids and I'm not bashing on these camps because it is a last ditch effort. But the problem when you don't have oversight is now we're letting parents make crazy decisions where I'm sending my kid to this camp because they're gay. Or I'm sending this kid to this camp because, because they, of, they ha they're drinking an Arnold Palmer. I found three Arnold Palmer So can I, can I tell you another bad parenting story of mine? Oh dear. So I was very much against artificial sweeteners. Oh. I still am. I don't, it causes... Uh like liver issues, like type two kidney disease or diabetes. Have you ever bought a pack of Pop-Tarts? Um, no, I really, I've you never bought- a terrible mother. I bought the, the organic kind <laughs> oh, from like God, Trader Joe's, right? So- I think those are rice cakes. <laughs> this was part of the issue. So I didn't buy like candies or really sweets for my kids. If I did, it was something organic in nature that didn't have high fructose corn syrup in it, right? And I'm still that way. Well, what I didn't realize that my kids were doing because I was so over the top and didn't buy them anything with sugar, they were sneaking Vicks cough drops out of the cabinet. Like the cherry in my flavored? Bathroom, the cherry flavored yeah. one. And they would eat those all night long. <laughs> that was the sugar fix? Yeah. I didn't know that they were doing this. They told me this years later and I felt like a horrible and, and then they found that they need to keep the stash just in case they get dropped off at the orphanage yeah. so they've got something to survive on? Yeah, basically. <laughs> it, it also reminds me, you had a call and I'll never forget you explaining this story. It's actually two calls back to back and you were dealing with one kid that was having some personal sexual issues and then you had another kid. Oh, that, oh, 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 so no, it was, so it's one of those things that you never know, like, I think you and I were talking about something, like you never know what kind of call you're gonna end up on. Right. When you're a police officer, like it could be, you're at a, uh, a traffic stop one moment and the next moment you're at a dead guy with his face in a pie somewhere. But this particular evening, it was, we, I ended up at a call and it was just an unruly, teenager and he had several calls for service his family had called a lot and this kid was psychotic he had a lot of mental health issues legitimately going on and he had tried hanging like the family cat from the ceiling fan and yeah and luckily like i wasn't the primary on this this call so it was pretty much an in and out but i'm watching this like this weird family moment of like the siblings crying, it's the cat and the cat's hurt. Wait, did like, the cat live? Um, I don't remember if the cat lived or not. I, at that oh, point, dear. I just, I didn't really care. Like I just remember seeing like a rope around the cat and, and like the, the explanation of what was happening. <laughs> and the next call, I'm literally off to a, um, a family who is a mother who's very distraught about her teenage son and she begins to explain to me that he's just doing things in his bedroom that 
it's just it's not right he has to stop yes well she didn't say the words unholy however there are lots of um pictures of temples around the house and very um very Mormon, it's a very Mormon family, I can so tell based doing? on the pictures. Well, I had to get more out of her and I say, well, please explain to me what he's doing. And I'm thinking like, is this kid hanging cats from the van too? But he's not. She explained, well, he has to relieve himself all the time in his bedroom, but he does it all the time. And so she starts showing me peeing? like magazines, porn magazines and this and that. Oh, no, he's so masturbating. he's masturbating all the time in his bedroom. And a I'm teenage, thinking to myself, a teenage boy is masturbating in his bedroom. Well, that's pretty much what I told her. I'm like, ma'am, your son is not doing what every other 15 year old in America is doing right now. Like it, just be grateful is this is all your thing. son is doing is right. masturbating in his bedroom because he's a teenager. He's not hanging your your family pets. Like he's not From trying to strangle like the siblings the family gecko or something, right? <laughs> and it's funny because you have these extremes of parents who right. like the Arnold Palmer example. Um yeah. <laughs> me as a, a cough drop mom, right? Like I it's hard to go into these situations and actually see kids who are really, really struggling with mental health issues who are probably pose a threat to society in some way versus a kid who's just being a kid, but their parents are helicopter parents and they have these really strange beliefs. Right, right. It reminds me of another call that I was on once with a, a, a friend of mine, <laughs> very fun officer to work with. Same thing, all kinds of crazy issues uh, going on within the family, but they were normal. But the more we got the story, like it was pretty clear the, the parents were as much of an issue, if not more so, than the kid. And I don't know what to do. Like I was a pretty young officer, and this other officer who's senior to me at the time, he just finally stopped the entire conversation, and he told the parents, he said, look, I can't fix in the next 15 minutes what it took you 15 years to fuck up. And it's there's figure so much it out. It. Like figure it out. Yes, and so, it's yeah. people call the police all the time parent their kids yeah it's terrible it is the weirdest thing ever when you have to show up to a call and do that because how i parent my kids is in no way how you've been parenting your kids for the past 10 or 15 years but yeah, yeah. The, most kids aren't smuggling cough drops i don't think <laughs> so, yeah you're probably true all right anyway, so let's get back on. to our case so <laughs> billy finally makes it out of the program and he's going to go home and i can only imagine what like that first two or three hours when he gets home like hey mom i'm home thanks for the hand job but no thanks like this wasn't for me right and he he tells mom everything mom freaks out this isn't what i meant when i said i was gay yeah yeah like (laughs) tell the doctor (laughs) like what's going on um he's still gay by the way um so long story short uh, some parents start coming forward because they're hearing these stories uh it prompts an investigation I'm the lucky schmuck who got this investigation. So this was actually my my case. And at the time, uh, I was one of the only people certified for forensic interviewing of children, which is how I got saddled with this catastrophe. Um, so you can imagine my concern when I realized there's like a hundred victims, and I have to conduct interviews on all hundred of these boys. Um, it was eye opening. It, it was really eye opening. At the time, the the number one thing I'm looking did they for, all talk? They all talked, some of them less than others, some of them deflected a lot, some of them acknowledged that something definitely happened, but they didn't want to be involved. Um, Most were at a point in their life that they just didn't want to deal with this. Like there was so much trauma with the overall experience. They're like, I don't want nothing to do with this. Uh, We did have a handful come forward. 
So luckily we're able to piece together like this was a real deal, like this this was happening, um, which, which was kind of scary to hear some of these kids recount like just how screwed up this whole situation was. We got a great case here. Let's go arrest this guy, Dr. Sorokin. So mm-hmm. we drive down to his, his medical office. He's working in the middle of the day. I introduce myself. Hey, I need to talk to you about kids. He brings me back into one of his exam rooms. I'm like, no physical, thank you. Um, but we start talking and I tell him like, hey, we've had kids come forward and they described and I described to him what these kids had been reporting and I'm ready to put him in handcuffs and haul him away. And he's like, well, of course I did that. And he just owns it like bare and shit. Like, well, yeah, have you never had a physical? And he starts to explain that he went to the College of Medicine in Wisconsin and that this was a actual medical procedure that he was taught at this college where he got his medical degree. So you grew up in a small town. Were you thinking like, what have I been missing? Yeah, like nobody ever whacked me off during a physical. And most of the male doctors I had, see, this is what's crazy about sex crimes. In my demented, screwed up head, I look at this and I'm thinking about 10 of the doctors I had. Oh my God, I'm a a victim. There was this one female doctor though, I'm not gonna lie. (laughs) Give me the luckiest boy in America medal, right? Because right, like, yeah. that was the best day of my life. Yeah, she didn't go to the school in Wisconsin, clearly. <laughs> no, no, clearly. But what was crazy is, yeah, it did. He was so convincing that this was an actual medical procedure mm-hmm. that it, it really took me back. And I didn't arrest him. I was like, I better go get my, my ducks in a row here. So I immediately mm-hmm. drive back to the police department. And I and as you're leaving, there's like Bobby and Jimmy sitting there <laughs> watching you leave. Please take me with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah, and Dr. Sorokin's like, next. next? Come on in, Jimmy. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> it, I made quick work of it. I was able to contact the director of the School of Medicine in Wisconsin, and now it went the exact opposite direction. Like, literally, he's like, are you so stupid as a cop that you are calling me to ask me if we're teaching doctors how to whack kids off? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, he sounded really convincing. And he's like, no, God, no. Would we ever do that? Like, You're the dumbest cop in America. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, he duped me. He totally <laughs> duped me. And he duped me good. So now it's after hours. But at the same time, though, you still have to verify that statement because had it come up in trial oh, as a defense and you didn't check into it, yeah, you had yeah. been screwed. Yeah, it, it was pretty interesting. So at this point, I'm like, OK, now we're going to go arrest this guy. But he's at home. <laughs> And this is where this story takes another crazy turn. We get to the house and he, he's, he's got to know that the gig is up, right? He knows okay. what he told me is bullshit. So uh-huh. I knock on the door, he opens the door and I explain to him like, hey. Wait, 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 I thought, did he open the door or did his wife open the door? I thought you had told me. They were, to, it could have been the wife. They were in close proximity to each other. Okay, okay. Because I remember them both standing there. And remember, this is almost 20 years ago, actually a little over 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. um, I'm explaining like, hey, I talked to the director of the school you went to and he's like hell no <laughs> so you are under arrest i need you to go into uh-huh. he's like well hang on can you please come in and shut the door and i'm like no come outside i'm placing you under arrest and we kind of get in this whole thing he's like no i need you to shut the door he's deflecting again yeah and he's holding the door like he's wanting to shut the door and he's like just come inside please and i'm like no and he's like the cats are going to get out oh my god and i'm like dude you are about to go to prison for a very long time i don't give a shit about your cats yeah have your wife heard them up? And then he's like, you don't understand. They're show cats. <laughs> Things you hear when you're arresting somebody I, for I picture child molestation. Like, yeah, I but pict- what about the show cats? <laughs> I picture this little like white cat with its fur like kind of floating on the ground and a little pink bow on its head. Is that? 
did you see these? They were cats, but I didn't really pay attention. They're, they're cats. I don't know. They're cats. I don't know what to tell you, but one of the cats did get out. Oh, um, no. I, th- I don't know if statue How much are these cats worth? I don't know. A lot. Apparently, they were really, like, famous show cats. Uh, so, anyway, I hook Mr. Stroken, oh, and uh, we end up booking him, and he ends up going to jail. Um the next thing we Good. do is in Arizona, they have what's called the Board of Medical Examiners. And within 24 hours, I'm testifying in front of the Board of Medical Examiners to our investigation. They suspend his license. So he is no longer allowed to practice medicine, which I'm thinking is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get ready to go to court, because all of the victims were juveniles, the courts or the, at least the, the prosecutors will typically try to push for a plea. And the idea here is putting these kids through a full-blown trial of testimony can be just as traumatic as the actual reliving the experience so uh in this particular case uh, he takes a plea deal um and sometimes with the plea deals to make them sweet enough so that they take it to avoid trial they kind of offer these consecutive opposed to concurrent sentencing so where he may get five years per kid four kids if he was to serve that consecutive he would do five years four kids 20 years total okay if he gets a concurrent he would serve five years he's serving five years for each for kid all of the, at the victims in this particular case he got seven years um <clears throat> he was an ideal prisoner apparently he's pretty quiet kept to himself in the corner <laughs> thinking about his cats you're thinking about his cats I could just go to that show yeah yeah and uh out. he only does five before he's released. So he's released, he's back out. There was a civil lawsuit um, and the civil lawsuit, basically, I wanna say it was like 350,000 total that was ordered. I don't know if it was ever paid or not. Uh, And it was only four victims that filed that lawsuit. We did have another local kid completely outside of this, this trail walking program who also came forward. He was there just to get a school physical. Same thing happened to him. So he wasn't just targeting the kids he was seeing as part of this program. He was targeting all of his patients. Yeah, it sounded like, a a ton of them so um and you know i think it's interesting when we go through these cases and kind of what you were talking about with with paris you would think that the molest piece of this case would be like that pinnacle traumatic experience that these kids are experiencing and what we're finding in going through the research for this podcast and me investigating that case this was a very small piece of a much bigger chunk of trauma yes. that had a much more of an impact than the molest itself, which I think is really profound. So, yeah, no, Paris actually talks about, and I have a whole new respect for her because I never really, I never thought that I would like pick up right. her book and actually read it until we got to this episode because it had something to do with what we were talking about. But she actually has a foundation called, um, I think, 1111 Impact. But she works with a, another foundation called Rain. So her 1111 Impact, I think, is a media company. And she works with an anti-sexual assault mm. foundation called Rain. Um, but it's basically shedding light on these industri- institutionalized schools that right. cater to troubled teens and the abuse that actually takes place in these schools beyond the molestation. Um, she talks about a lot of different types of um, body cavity searches that she had to go through during her time there when in actuality she started realizing this isn't just a body cavity search this is very very sexual molestation and disguised yes and i think that the sad thing about 
Well, any type of, of sexual assault is that when we start talking about someone like Dr. Sororkin, who he gets five years, he's out, he's initially sentenced to seven, everybody's like, okay, great, justice is served. Justice is never served in a pedophilia case. Right. In any type of sexual assault, there is never closure for a victim. It right. is so traumatic and intense, it just it continues throughout the span of their life. Um, so I, I have to give props to Paris Hilton for how she's handled this and like come out to speak about it and tell her story. Right, right. And we're gonna have a lot of cases that get into that where I've had some really crazy sexual assault cases that I think will expose that trauma. There is no true justice for that. Like, right. justice is just a simple word that people throw around. Like, they have no idea of that that feeling. Right. But, you know, we're not just going to stick to uh, the poor trail walkers, and this time we kind of bashed a little bit on the BYU people. Please join us next week when we are going to do a full-on assault of Catholic priests who decide <laughs> to sexually molest people. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So until then, stay safe. Thanks for joining us for Socialite Crime Club.